Well, open your Bible to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We are finding ourselves in the last half of this chapter, which is a unique part of the Bible. Basically, the Bible itself is broken down into a series of kinds of genre. And this genre is epistolary, and epistolary means it's a letter. And in this letter, it includes a lot of instruction. That's the first 11 um, uh, chapters. And also admonition, which is the last five, which includes this section. And this section is even unique itself because it's a list. It's a list of 25 admonitions or commands. It is a specialized list. It's a specialized section of Romans, and it's unlike any other. In fact, there are 25 of them. And this is, <laughs> this is the longest outline I've ever had in my ministry. It involves 25 points that we're going to kind of work through over the course of the next few weeks. Let me read verses 9 through 21 for you. I know um, last week I think it said 9 through 16, but it's actually 9 through 21, and set that in our minds. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Bless Those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never Pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, and if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with Good. It's an incredible list, isn't it? It almost feels like how I would hear my mom as I was leaving to go on a trip or to go take care of something. As I was walking out the door, there was this staccato barrage of do this, do that, remember this, do this. 
That's kind of what Paul's doing here. He's told us in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And as he does that, he says, serve each other in the body. And let me let you have it on how Christians relate to one another and relate to God and relate to the world. One of those most familiar verses in the whole Bible, I'm sure you know it well if you've been around the church for any length of time, is 2 Corinthians verse five, chapter 5, verse 17. It says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, what? Creature. Old things have passed away and new things have become, have come. We began our series last week on this section, this paragraph in Romans 12 by talking about the reality that Christianity fundamentally changes a person. Better said, Jesus Christ changes a person. Better said than that, Jesus Christ is far too powerful, far too awesome, far too wonderful, way too amazing to invade a person's life, take up residence with a person without there being a radical, demonstrable change that takes place in the life of that person who now dwells with the living, resurrected Jesus. In Paul's words, he or she is a new creature. It doesn't even say a new person. He could have said a new person. He goes beyond that. He says you're not even the same creature. You're a new creature. Further, he says, old things the way you used to be now have has passed away, and new things, a new way of thinking and living and responding and behaving, a new way of living has now come. You know, that impacts or should impact our, our, our expectations. What do we expect from our own lives about being a Christian? What do we expect, we expect from, from the world about this change, these changes that are taking place in us? What, what are our expectations the verses before us are intended to change us so that the expectations are clearly laid out, clearly perceived, clearly understood, and we're faithful in the midst of them. And the place where all of these changes show up in a Christian, where the new creature-ness is manifest most, is in relationships. We talked about this last week. Every Christian operates in the sphere of three different relationships all the time. Everything you do impacts one or more of these relationships. First, it's our relationship with God, right? Second, it's our relationship with other Christians. Third, it's our relationship with the lost, or we could say upward, inward, outward. Now, I know people ask, we said this last week, well, what about my relationship with me? And you do have a relationship within your mind of thinking, but actually that's more indicative of, reflective of our relationship with, with God. Because we're never alone and we're never private. Now, going back at verses 1 and 2, we have to get a running start because this governs our understanding of all these 25 phrases that, that just kind of rattle off beginning of verse 9. In chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, therefore, goes back and says, Because I've told you the gospel and theology for 11 chapters, therefore, 
I urge you, brethren, based on the mercies of God, what God has withheld from us in his wrath because of the gospel, I urge you to present your bodies, the realm of your existence, as a living and holy sacrifice, the readers originally would have heard the term sacrifice both in a Jewish sense and in a Roman sense and would have thought of animals they take to the temple to be killed and butchered and then eaten as a, a way of responding to God and ultimately by dealing with wrongs and sin. <laughs> Here Paul says, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Sacrifices didn't live. This is different. We, we are the sacrifice. And do not be conformed, he says, to this world. Be different. Christianity, Christ, changes a person. Don't be conformed to this world. Be different. And how you're transformed by thinking differently, by the renewing of your mind, so that you may demonstrate or prove what God's will is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's back to the language of sacrifice. Well, he begins after that, as I said, talking about our giftedness that operates within the body, how we relate to one another. But now in this, this, this section in verses 9 through 21, I think he lays out what God's will is for your life. Specifically, how God's will works its way out into the realm of relationships. Upward toward God, inward toward the body of Christ, and outward toward the unconverted. I really believe that this is about how we respond to people. Apply this passage and your marriage will change. Apply this passage and your parenting will change. Apply this passage and the way you respond to your parents will be, be radically altered. Apply this passage and our church will change. The care groups will change. Our Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings will change. Apply this passage and your relationships at work will change. In your neighborhood will change. Apply this passage and your friendships will change. And apply this passage and you will now have a plan for how to respond to enemies. It's all here. It's an incredible list that sketches the contours of God's will for our lives that we are to prove in verse 2. Big promises, but I think they're all here. Now, we're going to start dissecting this. We're going to be going through this with some care over the coming weeks. And as I said, it's the longest outline, sermon outline I've ever had in 30 plus years of preaching, but it's, there's 25 parts, and we're going to say there's 25 parts. 25 applications of the gospel for relationships. When I was in um, seminary, I remember a, a well-meaning instructor saying, you should never have more than three and at the most five points in a sermon. Well, this is going to take us several sermons and there's 25. I don't know what else to say. So let's break it down. First application of the gospel in relationships is this. Love sincerely in chapter 12, verse 9 a, the first part. Let love be without hypocrisy. As we said last week, the original language here is quite interesting. It literally says, the love not hypocritical. It takes on the form of a command, the love that you have, don't let it be hypocritical. 
The goal of our instruction is love, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5. In other words, the agape love we're to have toward others should be without hypocrisy, said another way, without pretense or pretending. We are to be who we really are. We don't pretend to love when in reality it's not in our hearts. We dive, dove into this rather in some detail last week. To love sincerely, to love without hypocrisy, to be who we are in all places at all times, genuine and sincere, without hypocrisy, never putting a mask on, as the word means in the original, to act like someone we're not. It means moving beyond caring in a moment to caring as a life and a lifestyle. Well, that was last week. We're going to cover the next two now. Number two, the second uh, application of the gospel in relationships is this. Hate what's evil. Hate what is evil. The New American Standard translates this, abhor what is evil. Four simple words that can mark and should mark your entire existence as a Christian. To abhor and to hate what's evil. Now, when coupled with the next phrase, clinging to what is good, you really have a compass for all of life. Avoiding, hating evil, loving, clinging to what is good. Pretty simple. Look down at verse 21, how this section ends. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's the same idea. Now, is this new? Is Paul inventing some kind of new morality that has come with his experience with Jesus? He says no, because he is obviously thinking of Amos in mind. Amos was a fruit picker. He was a uh, tender of trees, fruit trees, and God saved him radically and made him a preacher. Amos chapter 5, verse 15, listen. Hate evil. Love good and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Hate, evil, love, good. Sounds exactly like what Paul's saying here, doesn't it? Let's break it down even a little further here in Romans. The verb is abhor. Apo, that's the, the Greek prefix here. Apostugantes, which means hate with the uttermost hatred. Now, I've told you as we go through this list, we're really going to dive in uh, to the original language, and so we, we need to do a little study here for a moment, okay? I'm going to teach you a phrase that might be useful to you later, but it's important here. It's the term hapax legomena. A hapax legomena is an important uh, under a concept in the study of the Greek New Testament. What it means is it's a word that's used only one time in the entire Greek New Testament. This word is a hapax. You say, well, what's the big deal with that? Now, think with me here. We, we understand that Paul is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and Paul was writing with his full personality, but also under the full inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, He had an entire dictionary in his own mind. He had an entire experience with the Greek language, which he could have chose one of several words for hate. 
Here, he chose the word hate or abhor that is stronger than any word possibly phrased in the Greek language at this time. Abhor. Let me read you what my Greek dictionary says about this word. It expresses a strong feeling of horror. It implies loathing, abhorrence, and being instantly and engagingly disgusted. That's the word. Hate, loathe, abhor, to be disgusted by evil. The fact that it's so intense and that this word is only used here ought to ring a bell and get our attention of how strongly Paul is encouraging us to think about what he's communicating. Proverbs 8.13 says this, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of God is to hate evil. In other words, if you love, respect, fear, honor, and reverence God, then you will by reflex and by necessity and by instinct and by nature hate evil. Psalm 97 verse 10, hate evil, you who love the Lord. Hate evil, you who love the Lord. Notice it doesn't say hate evil people. Doesn't say hate bad people. It says hate evil. Hate this concept of evil. Jack Cottrell writes this. The message here is clear. There can be no neutrality in the moral realm. We cannot hide behind some alleged moral or cultural relativism. Good and evil objectively exist in God's own nature and in God's law. Christians, therefore, must take a clear and unequivocal stand against the evil and for the good, end quote. You know, we find ourselves in a culture that is completely shaped and controlled by evil, which is another way of saying it's controlled and influenced by the devil, by Satan. Remember Ephesians 2? He's called the prince of the power of the air. And we find out in that same passage that he actually has influence, radical worldwide influence over this planet. Not more than God. He's under God's watchful eye. We know that in Job, right? He had to ask God's permission to attack Job. But he does have reign on this planet. And in his reign, he's developed a culture and a system that is characterized by evil, but he comes as an angel of light, which means he never wants you to think of evil as evil, but think of evil as enjoyment, as pleasure, as doing what you're intended to do and what your body and your mind wants to do, as enjoying the world like everyone else is. His culture the one in which we live, the devil's culture, Satan's culture, can easily lull us to sleep about morality, what is right and wrong, what God approves of and what God hates. God's perspective on things can be elbowed out of our minds because we're only thinking in the moment. That's being under the sway and power and influence of the devil's culture, which is evil. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul told the Thessalonians, This is such a good summary of what he says here in verse 9 and Romans 12. 
Examine everything carefully. Examine, be discerning. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The old author I said, abstain from every appearance of evil. NIV and NLT translate this, every kind of evil. So does it mean every appearance of evil, every kind of evil, or every form of evil? And the answer is yes. That's exactly what it means. Now, you've got to be careful with the old King James version of this, uh, avoid every appearance of evil, because you could avoid the appearance of evil and still have evil in your heart, right? It's hypocrisy, which Paul just forbade. It's appearance and form and manifestation and kind of evil. He says avoid everything related to evil, even its appearance. One of the things that always comes up in the premarital counseling that my wife and I do with couples is eventually they say, we know we're headed for marriage where you can enjoy the physical relationship of intimacy that God has given in marriage. But until we get there, how... How far can we go before it's sin? And we always talk to them about this, this illustration that, that, that looks at sin, that's fornication, that's going all the way, doing what you shouldn't. There's sin, and by saying, how far can I go? Which direction are you looking? How close can I get to sin and still be okay? This text says abhor refuse, resist, abhor what is evil, which means to ask, how holy can I be? It's not just in a physical relationship of premarital couple, it's in everything we do. How close can we become toward holiness? How far can we get away from evil? Abstain from every form, every kind, every appearance, every manifestation of evil. This doesn't mean we're being legalistic. It means we're being holy. And I've never known anyone who's trying to be holy who hasn't been accused of being legalistic at some level. It just comes with the territory. Typically, it's because your standard of living make other people's convicted, so the best thing to do is, is uh, uh, call you legalistic. Now, there are legalists that we need to address, but that's another sermon. Ephesians 5.11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but even expose them. We not only avoid it for ourselves, we point to it with our lips and with our lives and say, no way, not me. Expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Look down the page at Romans 13, verse 14. Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no, the Greek word here is a strategy, strategons, make no strategy or provision or plan for the flesh in regard to its lust. That's what it means to avoid and abhor and hate evil, even in your own life. That's putting on the good and putting off the bad. Putting on Jesus having no provision for the flesh. Now, we've said all along, this is about relationships. How does this impact relationships? Abhorring evil, and as we'll see in a moment, clinging to good, 
How does that impact relationships? What bearing does it have on that? Well, let's look first of all at our relationship with God. How does it impact our relationship with God? Abhorring evil? Well, evil displeases God. It's disloyal to God. It's just disloyal to the gospel. When we love evil instead of hating evil, we are loving that for which he sent his son to suffer and bleed and die. It impacts other believers when we hold to evil. It confuses and can actually lead them astray because of our example and our unenviable enjoyment of sin. It impacts our relationship with unbelievers because it dulls the luster of the gospel that ought to be shining from our very lives. Remember Philippians chapter 2, Paul said, Verses 14 to 16, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Listen, listen. So that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights to the world. A light shows up when it's dark, doesn't it? I have a flashlight that I bought for hunting and fishing. It's a good flashlight. It's a scary flashlight. It has blinded 11 people that I know of for, it's just, no, it's just a, it's a, it is a good, it is a, it's the brightest flashlight I've ever, it's really small, and it, it will light up. If, if it was completely dark in here, I could turn it on, and you could see the whole room. It's a fun flashlight. Did you know that you can actually, on a dark night, see a candle burning at over 10 miles if there's no obstructions? Light shows up in darkness. Christians show up in the world as light. That's what Paul said. We don't only run from it, we reveal it. Where does this show up? We've kind of talked about abhorring. We've talked about evil. What's evil? Where does it show up? My suspicion is, I don't have to tell you, if you're a blood-bought believer with a conscience sanctified by Christ, you know exactly what evil is in your life and what you're to abhor and hate and run from. But I'll tell you some places it shows up. It shows up in our entertainment, does it not? It's always, it gets deathly quiet when you talk about this. Christians don't watch the same movies that unbelievers do. They don't entertain themselves with the same TV shows that unbelievers do. They, they have a different idea of going to plays than unbelievers go to. Our entertainment is not something that we use to entertain ourselves with that Jesus died for. It shows up in our music. Oh, I like the tune, but, you know, the lyrics aren't that great. Is that abhorring evil? It shows up in our use of computers and on our search engines. Hating evil shows up in our friendships. We say, brother, sister, don't, please, 
please, you can't do that. That's not good for you, and it's certainly not good for me. Shows up in our thinking. Identifying evil, which is the on-ramp to sin, either in mind or body, that's evil, the on-ramp to sin, the temptation to sin, the manifestation of sin. Pursuing evil is exactly what is in mind here when Paul says, not only don't pursue it, but hate it. You will know you're growing in Christ when you begin hating sin more than you love it, which means you have to admit that you love it before you can learn to hate it. We are natural born lovers of sin. Every one of us, me at the head of the list. Griffith Thomas writes, the Christian soul is to shrink from what is wrong. Shrinking away from what is wrong. The power of love, think about this, the power of love to hate that which is not good is one of the prime marks of true life. Unless there is this scorn and opposition to evil, our love is lacking an essential feature. Part of a Christian's love involves a severe hate. It's odd to say, isn't it? But that's true. Loving God, clinging to what is good, involves hating what is evil. And I, we could list this. I, I thought, well, how many things do I list as examples? Can I just ask you to read the New Testament? And you'll find out really quick what evil is that's to be abhorred and avoided and shunned or watch the life of our Lord Jesus. Now, in order to not only balance, but even bring this into clearer definition and focus, we have to go to number three. Cling to what is good. Thirdly, a third application of the gospel in relationships, cling to what is good. The verb for cling is also strong, just like the verb for abhor is. It literally means to cleave to, to, to glue yourself to, to adhere to. It was used of taking a branch and grafting it into a vine. You're glued, you're a part of, you cling to it, you hold on to it. I don't want to bore you too much with the Greek here, but the active voice means to glue two things together. Here it's a middle voice, which means glue yourself to it. Have intentionality about it. Cleave to what is good and never let go. Become united with the good, which is to become united with Christ, who's the definition of good. Now, this is interesting to me because the Bible always balances, as I said, flee, flee from, pursue, put off, put on, run to, run from. So what does it mean to cling, to glue yourself to what is good? Well, cling means hold on with all your might, how do we define good? If you read the New Testament, you'll find that out really clear. But let me give you a little, little cheat sheet, a little advantage. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise... Let your mind dwell on these things. It's what's good. Listen, 
Friends, beloved brothers, sisters, Christianity has a traumatic and dramatic and demonstrable impact on your morality. Christianity is more than morals, but it certainly involves them. And our morals are always reflective of what we think. Now we're back in verse 2. We're not conformed to the world, but our minds are transformed. They're renewed so that we do the will of God. And listen, we will cling to the good only to the degree that our thinking is transformed to perceive the value of its goodness. When we believe that pursuing righteousness, holiness, and and good is way better for us and for God than it is to pursue evil and the enjoyment of sin. Paul told the Colossians in chapter 3, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking, keep seeking, keep seeking. That's the idea of the Greek. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on those things above not on the things that are on the earth. There's a clear distinction between evil and good, right and wrong, God and the world, holiness and unholiness. It's where Christ is. It's defined by Christ. How does that work out in relationships? We keep saying this is about relationships. How does that work out? Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15, see to it that no one repays another with evil for evil. Doesn't that sound like what Paul is about to tell the Romans in, in a few verses? See to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. We know what's good, we can recognize what's good, and we promote what's good in the people around us and in the relationships we enjoy. That's what he's saying here. Cling to it, own it, hold it, chase it. Now, at the risk of sounding like I spend my evenings reading, excuse me, watching episodes of Leave It to Beaver, that's what it sounded like when I wrote this paragraph. (laughs) But let me just read it, can I? Christianity makes a person wholesome. It makes a man or woman more ethical, moral, clean, Virtuous, innocent, chaste, kind, forgiving, loving, nice, sweet, selfless, admirable, and above reproach, unreproachable, not able to be accused of evil in any form. That's not leave it to beaver, that's the New Testament. These are the virtues that we hold on to, that we cling to, that we fight for, for which we are made fun of. Remember the verb. We are glued to these. Glued to them. Inseparable from them. They are the signature of your life. These virtues are, and they become the signature of who you are. When you're saved, when you're converted by Christ, when he radically transforms you, this becomes how you're known. It's how we relate to others. 
Do our habits reveal then a desire to cling to what is good? Your habits, do they, do they reveal the abhorring evil and clinging to, pursuing, understanding what is good? The only way you can do that and know that and be transformed with your mind thinking rightly about that is to drum roll. Read your Bible. That's where you find it out. I find myself way too often saying, this is the read your Bible more sermon. But guess what? How do you know what's evil to abhor and what's good to cling to? It's in God's word. And ultimately, it all points to the the Savior himself who personifies everything that is abhorring evil and everything that clings to what is good. Think of how this impacts and what it implies for your relationships. How, How does abhorring evil and clinging to what is good impact the way you and your wife Talk, enjoy entertainment, eat where you go, what you listen to, how you interact with your neighbors and unbelievers and the people who don't like you and the people who do like you. And is it love that's unhypocritical? How you respond by shepherding the soul of your husband or wife to make them more holy, not more pursuing that which is destructively evil. With our kids, how we raise our kids, doesn't this impact and shape abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good, our values in our home, what we let in, what we keep in, what we cherish? With your parents, if you're a, if you're a student, how, if you're at any level with your parents, how, how, how do we respond to them by our virtues, believing friends, unbelieving friends, with your friends and with your enemies? Listen, If you live this way, abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, you will catch the eye of a lost and dying world and their response will be to you exactly what it was to Jesus. They will love you, admire you, and want to be like you and know your Lord or they will hate your morality, despise your standards, feel condemned and convicted by your behavior and persecute you. And that's the example Jesus left for us, isn't it? This is the way we love others without hypocrisy. Because how we respond in their face is how we respond behind their back, which means that we love what is good and hate what is evil with others and by ourselves, with the saved and the unsaved, and with God when we're alone. I was thinking about this this week, and it... it, came to mind the, the example of, of Judas, who was the exact opposite of, of this. Just in the simple action on that Thursday evening, could have been early in the morning of Friday after midnight, when he brought the soldiers to find Jesus. Jesus rises, sees the torches coming, the light coming, walks toward them and says, who do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. They fall down. In the midst of all that, though, Judas had given them a sign to know which one Jesus was, lest he tried to slip out through the crowd. And he said, he's the one whom I will, what? Kiss. Let love be without hypocrisy. His expression of love was utterly, what? Hypocritical. We find in that one scene with Judas a hypocritical expression of love 
we find he was clinging to what was evil and abhorring what was good. It's remarkable. The fact that God gave his own begotten son who lived a life and died a death for those who believe in such a way as to show us the way, provide us the way to God, and he rose from the dead. The gospel itself should motivate us to be different, to change, because he's so gracious, because he's so merciful, because he's so kind. The kindness of God, Romans 2, 4, leads us to do what? Repent, repentance. This is all a response Loving others without hypocrisy, abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, is a response. It's a reflex. It's a, it's a knee jerk to what he's done for us in the gospel. We don't do this so that God says, a boy." We do this because God has said, my son's died for you. I'm more and more convinced as I spend time in this passage with these 25 commandments. This is, this is shorthand for the will of God and the lifestyle of a Christian. You can say more than is on this list, but you could never say less than is on this list. Last thing. Read this list, and you're going to feel arrow after arrow after arrow from the Holy Spirit piercing your chest and your back and your side and your head, your feet and your hands. You feel the piercing, like, well, I, I'm not, I want to, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. That's why we have grace and mercy in the gospel. I want to... I'm afraid as we go through this list, you're going to think, well, this is a checklist. If I do this, I'll be better. And you'll certainly respond better to the Lord. But it's only Christ and the gospel that makes us holy. These are just expressions after we love him and have experienced his holiness. Not a way to become that. Let's never confuse a list of to-dos with what God has done for us. You understand? We can't, we can't confuse those, but this is the response that he gives us a few verses after he told us what he's done for us. Great fodder to talk about. Great application to pursue.